Last week we looked at, we began to look in verses 13 and 14 at, at the source, at, at where this defense is really rooted. And it's rooted in a fear of God, we said, more than a fear of man. And we, Peter here in verse 14 quotes Isaiah 8, 12, where God's people were fearing the same thing that the world was fearing, even though they had God and His promises on their side. And God was offended at that. And, he was, and when God's people worry and fret over the same things that the world worries and frets over, when, we, when yet we have His promises, what does that declare to the world about our God and His promises? What might that declare to the world about what we, what we think about His promises? And Peter is saying here that we ought to be we, we walk obediently no matter what we face, that, that we can be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in us. We can. And today in verses 15 and through 17, he, he speaks to that. And, and I broke it up in 15 and through 17 because 18 through 22 is a, is a section in and of itself. 18 through 22 is probably the most complicated, the most misunderstood passage in the entire New Testament. And so I thought, you know what? My sermons are long enough. We're going we're gonna to dedicate a Sunday only to that one because it's going to take a while for me to unpack carefully what you see in 18 through 22 as best as I know it. I'm not going to tell you I know exactly what it says, but I do feel good about what it says. I feel confident about what it says in the context. And we'll look at that that next week. And verse 18 is probably uh, one of the most concise statements about the gospel that you'll find. And so I want to look at that. But today, how do we get to that point? How, how do we get to a spot where we're always ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us? How do we get to a spot where we will do that with gentleness and respect? How do we do that where we will not, we will not bow down to, to accusations and, and intimidation and slander and all these things? How do we get to the point as believers where, where we can, as he says in verse 16, live in such a way that's faithful and that we will, for conscience sake, be loyal? And then in 17, how do we get to the spot where we can say, even if the Lord wills it, it's one thing when, when evil men and women persecute us and we suffer. It's a whole other thing in verse 17 when God's will is the reason we are suffering. How do we get to that spot? And Peter's telling us. And, and the main point, I think, that what Peter wants his readers to see and wants you and I to see again, building off last week about the fear of man is this. The goal of our defense is the exaltation of God and the hope that only he provides through the gospel. This, this is about hope. This is about, about what, are, what do we exalt in more than anything else? What do we take pleasure in more than anything else? What do we want to be known for more than anything else? E even in the face of unjust suffering, will we fear God more than man? Will we seek to exalt God more than self? No matter what the cost. 
Because again, this is, this is more than just what he's saying here as we, 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 we leaned into this last week. This is more than just answering questions. This defense is more than just being right. It's more than just being able to give an answer. This is about making much of our God. This is about the exaltation. This is about standing firm in the face of opposition with the sole purpose of glorifying our God, exalting our God. Because He truly is our only hope. And if He truly is our only hope, then we will exalt Him above all else. And again... We, we, we must get to the point in our lives, and this is where, sanct- this is where sanctification and spiritual maturity comes in, where, where God and His glory have no competitors in our lives. Even self, John in, verse three, in chapter 3, verse 30 says, God must increase, I must decrease. The, the goal here is that God would have no competitors in our lives, if, if anything in our life, listen, if anything in our life is about our glory, if our hope is rooted anywhere other than the gospel, then listen, our flesh is going to hate what we see here over the next couple weeks. It's going to fight it. Because if, our, if, our, if our, our glory, if it's about our glory, if our hope is somewhere else, if our hope is in the things of this world, then suffering, even if it's God's will, and even if God wants to get glory for it, then suffering will be seen as a competitor to our glory. But if our hope and our glory is in God being glorified, and God is glorified in His children suffering and doing it joyfully, now suffering and has all, it takes on a whole new context. You see, it's not a competitor. It's a friend. It's like in my home. You know, if, if, if I went golfing every afternoon and left Karen at home with the kids every, every night, golf would be seen as an enemy. But if my priority is home, and all of a sudden a chance to play golf comes up, my wife says, Go. Why? Because golf's not a competitor to her. I can go enjoy the golf. Why? Because it's not an enemy of my wife. It's not an enemy of the home. God must be our hope. He must be the one that we seek to exalt. Not more than anything else. I would say alone from everything else. Karen doesn't want to be the number one woman in my life. She wants to be the only woman in my life. If I said, Karen, you're the number one ranked woman in my life, you know what she's going to ask? Who's two and three and four? Who's my competition? God's not interested in being number one in your life if there's a two, three, and four. He's interested in being the only hope of your life. And out of that, everything else flows. As Daniel saying this morning, every, every throne before him must fall. Every competitor has got to die before him. 
So how do we exalt our God as our hope? How do we stand firm? How do we proclaim his excellencies? How do we how do we keep our behavior, as it says in verse 12, excellent among the Gentiles, so that the thing in which we're slandered, they will be put to shame, even as he says here in verse 16. The, the first thing I want you to see here in verse 15 that, that Peter says is, we exalt God as our only hope by setting him apart from all other gods and pursuits. Setting him apart. That is how we exalt God as supreme, by, excuse me, by setting him apart. By not making him one of many priorities in our lives, making him the priority in our life. No rivals. Peter says, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. That word literally means set apart. Ultimately, this is about worship. And exaltation is worship. Exaltation is worship. We, we set God and His worship apart as, as preeminent in our lives, as, as more important than anything else. He's not just something we do on Sundays. Our, our Christianity is not something we do on Sundays and Wednesdays. It is who we are. I mean, my children are my children. In everything they do, listen to me, in everything they do, they're a basham. They're not just my kids when they're hanging out with me. They're just not my kids when they're at home. Every single thing they do, everywhere they go, everything they say, every, every aspect of their life, guess what, reflects back on the Bashams. I mean, and not, not to come around across bragging about him, this wasn't in my notes, but last night, you know, Bradley's teacher sent, sent us an email and said, hey, I just want you guys to, I want you to know about something that happened in class and you ought to be proud of your son. And there was a student struggling and Bradley on his own without prompting or anything went over, stopped what he was doing, helped that student, got that student straight and then went back to his work. And she emailed me about that. Listen, that was glorifying. Bradley's behavior exalted the Basham name. You see the point? And something as menial as just stopping what he's doing on, at school and going and helping another student. That teacher saw that. Bradley came in last night and he did, I just got an email and he comes by and I said, Bradley, is there something you need? Did something happen in math class you need to tell me about? And he got white as a ghost. He's like, What? Yeah, you keeping something from us? And he is scared. I mean, he's scared. I finally let the cat out of the bag. No, no, I'm teasing. He's like, yeah, I didn't know what you... But, but listen, do you see the point I'm trying to make? God, God is declared excellent. He's exalted through our lives, every aspect of our lives, from the smallest to the largest, set apart. Again, the illustration of marriage is perfect here. In marriage... You take one woman and you set her apart from all other women and you love that woman. You set women, you set all the other men aside and you choose one man. You're exalting that one woman. You're exalting that man, if you will. Again, we're not talking about idolatry or false worship when I say exalting, but you're elevating that one person. 
And, and being able, you see it there on your handout, being able to give a defense for our hope starts with setting God apart from everything else. His pleasure, His applause is sought after more than all else. It's focusing on our, our hope on God above all else. And, and the issue is what do we truly worship and hope in? Are we hoping in what the world promises or us or what God promises? Are we relying on what the world promises or what God promises? And, and, and why we fail to give an account, why we, defend, why we fail, and listen, we've all been there where we've failed to step up. It, it's why Satan can intimidate us into being quiet is ultimately about where we find our hope and what we worship in. Or what we glory in. What do we fear the most? What do we want the most? If I fail to step up and speak up on behalf of Christ in the face of opposition to men, here's what I know about, I learned about myself. I care more about their approval than I do God's approval. That's a hard thing to realize, but that's the bottom line truth. I care more about what they think about me than I care about what God thinks about me. That's the context. In that moment... I care more about what they can offer me or what they're doing. For, I care more about that than I do about God's praise. That's what Peter's saying. 13 and 14, he let up. That's where it starts, fearing God more than man. The, the world says, hey, you go my way, I'll look out for you. You'll just keep quiet, we'll look out for you. Do we trust that? We shouldn't, but do we? Is that where we're placing our allegiance? Is that where we're placing our, our hope? That's where it starts. That's what Peter is saying. That's where it starts. What do we exalt in? What do we hope in? Whom do we fear the most, God or man? And disobedience, not speaking up, it's not a neutral thing. It's not, it's not a neutral thing. It's not an inconsequential thing. It's rooted in worship and exaltation. It's rooted in, in what we cherish or value. It's rooted in hope. And when we, don't, when we back down and we don't, we don't give a defense for the hope that is in us, we're saying to the world that we trust you more than we trust God. We're, we're relying on the world's promises more than God's promises. That we fear man more than we fear God. And the reverse is true. If we fear God more than man, if we're really trusting in His promises, we won't back down. If we've set Him apart, if we've sought to exalt Him over all else, even our own safety, we won't back down. So, so it starts with setting him apart. Secondly, how do we exalt God as our only hope? We exalt God as our only hope by being ready to give a defense to everyone who asks. It's interesting here what Peter says about how a Christian is supposed to relate to the world, even a world that is hostile to them. And what Peter teaches us really forbids two approaches that are common mistakes that I would say that believers make today with regards to how we relate to the world around us, especially an opposing world. Number one, and these are two things that Peter forbids, believers are not permitted to withdraw for, from society for safety's sake. He doesn't say withdraw. 
but, but also believers are not permitted to launch a hostile counterattack on society. And, and we've seen both of those approaches. And, and, and we've seen how unproductive those things are. They do not declare the excellencies of our Lord. They do not motivate non-believers to, to look to our Lord as their hope. They do quite the opposite. They don't elevate the Lord. And exclusion nor hostility, neither one are called. It, this is about engaging the world for the good of God's kingdom, for the expansion of God's kingdom. Not isolating ourselves, not, incre not increasing hostility. We've talked about that. Peter, in how he writes these things, is writing in such a way that, it, they don't, that we can live obediently to Christ without causing chaos. With, without maligning our God. And you see it on your handout. Faith does not close doors to relationship with others out of fear, but rather turns in openness to others as God has done to us in the gospel. This doesn't mean sinning in order to win people. That's not what I'm talking about. But you and I, as believers, ought to have meaningful relationship with non-believers for the furtherance of the gospel. We ought, there ought to be people in our lives that we would say, I, am, I, am, I have a relationship with them because I'm, I'm seeking after them. God has laid them on my heart for the gospel's sake. It could be a coworker. It could be a neighbor. Who, who are we engaging? Who in your life is in your life and, you're, and they're there in your life because you, your desire is to see them saved? Your the desire is to see them won over, if you will, to Christ. All of our lives ought to have relationships with that. With, with that goal in mind, rather. We are here, again... Whether it's Timothy, we saw in 1 Timothy 3.16, the church is the pillar and the supporter of truth. Whether it's, whether it's Philippians 1, talks about we're here to defend the gospel. We are here to engage a world for the furtherance, the progress of the gospel to, to seek and save that which was lost, just as our Savior did. No matter the cost. And again, Jesus said in John 15, 18, do not be surprised when the world hates you. Don't be surprised. In chapter 4, Peter's going to say, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you're facing. 1 John 3, 13 says the same thing. They hated me. Guess what? They're going to hate you. Be prepared. We're to live openly in the midst of an unbelieving world and be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in us. The question for us becomes, can you do that? Can you give a defense for the hope that is in you? If someone walked up to you today and said, explain to me the gospel and why you hope in the gospel over everything else, could you answer them in a, in a winsome, loving, gentle, respectful way? Could you do that? Could you do that if they, were, if they were Hindu? Could you do that if they were Muslim? Could you do that if they were Mormon? Could you, could you, could you defend your faith and your hope in Christ, whomever asks? That's our, that's our demand, to give a defense in a winsome, loving way. Always, always, he says, 
always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Why do you trust Jesus Christ, believer, to the exclusion of all other gods? Can you explain that? Can you defend that? And you see it on your handout. We are commanded as believers to be able and ready to relate the Christian faith to unbelievers by addressing their questions in terms that they find, that they find meaningful and can relate to. It means getting rid of some of our, our Christian jargon and be able to speak to them in meaningful terms, being able to engage them in, in ways that they can understand. Articulate why you, your hope is in Jesus Christ and not in all these other false gods. And again, for the gospel's sake. These relationships exist with the world for the gospel's sake, not for the enjoyment of sin. Not because they let you go out and enjoy the flesh. For the gospel's sake. To correct, again, we ought to be engaged in the world so we can correct the misgivings about the world. I'll never forget our, our neighbor who is, is Hindu. Uh, we, we, he and I went on a bike ride together with our kids and we were taking a break. And he said, hey, I heard one of your, um, uh, one of your, your popular preachers are coming into town. You going to go see him? I said, who's, the, who's that? He said, he said, yeah, aren't you, you'd be good friends with Joel Osteen, weren't you? He's coming in town like, hey, whoa, ho, hold on now, hold on. And so we went, we, we jumped into a long conversation of why, 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 why are we not on the same page? And then here's the question, and this was honestly, this is what he then asked me. He said, hey, I was watching TV the other day, and you I saw these signs, he literally asked me this, these signs that said John 3.16, what does that mean, Chris? That's literally the question he asked me. I said, I don't know. <laughs> no, I en engaged him. Do, but do you see what engaging him, do you see what the, the bike ride allowed? I'm not, it's for the gospel's sake. But, but can we give a defense? It would be like if someone came up to you, think about it this, wives, if someone walked up to your husband and said, hey, why'd you marry such and such? And they looked at you like, uh, how, how encouraged would that be? Hey, Chris, why'd you marry Karen? Man, let me think about that for a second. Think about that. It ought to be on the tip of your tongue. We ought to be ready. And again, to anyone who asks, anyone, not this pat answer where no matter who it is, we've got to take them back to this one thing. We ought to be able to engage different people in different ways and be, be able to take all our conversations, all our conversations back to the gospel. No matter what conversation that is. I remember we went on a mission trip, Karen and I, right after we got married, we went to China and, and they helped train us to that. We would go into, onto universities and we would do these things called English Corners, and we would allow Chinese students to 
practice their English with us. The goal was every single conversation, we could answer any question they asked. We could not declare the gospel openly. We could answer any question they asked. The goal was for us to shape the conversation so that they asked the right questions and we would give an answer. And the answer was Jesus Christ. No matter what they talked about. Ready to give a defense. But we have to do this, you see it on your handout, with great humility. There's no place in pride or, or any... It's not about me. It's not about my pride just being smarter than you or this person or giving the right answers. This is about the humility of having once been an enemy of God and now I'm a child of God in the gospel. And that humility flows. It, it, it motivates the defense. Humility. I'm not better than, than an unrepentant sinner. God, God opened my eyes to His grace. Praise God. I didn't earn it. I didn't merit it. I didn't deserve it. No more or less than that other person who's not saved. Humility. That's why 1 Corinthians 1.31, he says, if we're going to boast, we're going to boast in where? We're going to boast in God. Not in the flesh. Not anything I did. I mean, the gospel, listen, we've got to do this with humility. The, but, and, and yet, we have to realize this. Listen, let's let the cat out of the bag. The gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. To tell somebody they're a sinner, separated, alienated from God, that no matter what they do in their life, they will never be righteous enough to merit heaven on their own, that they're destined for hell. That's offensive. To say that, we, to say that we've excluded all other gods except for Jesus Christ, that all other gods are false except for Jesus Christ, that is offensive. It crushes our pride. We hate that. Listen, the gospel is offensive, but you and I have no grounds for being offensive in how we present the gospel. The content, again, you'll see it on your handout, it, the content of the gospel will be offensive. Our presentation of the gospel can never be offensive. We're to be gentle we're to be respectful. We're to be loving. Again, you see 2 Corinthians 5. Paul is begging, begging the Corinthians to be reconciled to God. Begging them. You see the humility there that he's literally begging them in 17 and following of chapter 5 of 2 Corinthians. Can we, can we give a defense for our hope? Even in the midst of unjust suffering. Because, listen, and this is big. Think about this, context, gentleness and respect. This was not a friendly dialogue. These were, these were people who were hostile to them. These were people who were slandering them. These were people that were hating them. These were the people that were very offensive to them. And that's the context of gentleness and respectful. This wasn't just some hanging out with your boys. These are people that were overtly, aggressively offensive to these Christian believers. And Peter says, defend your faith with gentleness and respect. And let's be honest, that's where it gets tough. When we're being unjustly persecuted, that's where it's really hard to be gentle and respectful because our flesh wants to respond in kind. I've been there. 
and my pride can flare up real quick, and my self-defense can flare up real quick, and my, my flesh just wants to crush you and shut you up. And that would be sin. That's when it's more about me than it is about the gospel. It's about more about me being right than it is about winning this, person, this person's eyes being open to the gospel. Can we give a defense? Can we give a defense? And listen, we don't give a defense by letting go and letting God. We learn how to give a defense by putting our noses in the Bible and studying. By memorizing scripture. By grow groups. By meeting with, with, with other men, other women, one-on-one, one-on-two. That's how we learn to give a defense. Thirdly, we exalt God as our only hope by living lives that are consistent with the gospel. I mean, that's the whole point of what Peter is saying here. Live, look at verse 16. Keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Living in such a way that the opponent has nothing bad to say about you. That, that's what he said over there in verse 12. Our lives, you know, it, this is more than, just, more than just mentally having some answers. This is more than just mentally being prepared. This is about walking the walk as well as talking the talk. This is about submitting your own life first to the, to the God on whom you're proclaiming. This is about matching up your life with the gospel first and then and allowing that to back up our words. And you see it in your handout. Peter demands of believers a personal integrity before the Lord if we're truly to be effective. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I try to be hesitant and, and share things about our kids, and I don't, you know, I want to keep somewhat of a veil there even to protect them. And but, but again, that teacher saw something different in Bradley enough that she would email us. If she were to ask him, what, what was the motivation behind that? I hope that he would say the gospel. I'd hope that he would say the relationship of Jesus Christ. Do you not think that lady would be in somewhat more prepared to listen to him because of what she just saw the effect of the gospel had in his life? If he was known as a liar and a scandaler and cheating and flunking out of class and he said, oh, I trust in Jesus. Like, what? Mere words aren't enough. Peter's saying that. Our lives need, again, not perfection. We're going to sin. We, don't, we shouldn't be okay with that, but, but we should, the reality is we're going to fall. I mean, Luke 17, do not be surprised when you stumble. But, but our lives, there ought to be a movement, of, uh, a trajectory about our lives toward godliness, towards Christ-likeness. That's sanctification. The conforming our lives, Romans 8.31, to Christ. That's the, ultimate, that's the ultimate goal of Bible study. It's to, to conform our lives to the truths in which we're studying. Not just simply mentally log them in our minds, but to conform our lives to those truths. And, and again, why? Out of hope. So that we can stand confidently even when we're being slandered and not budge. And that's weird. And not only, not only that, but it gets weirder. 
you see it on your handout, the hope that we rest in, it's a future aspect of salvation. You're, you're not going to get it now. You'll get glimpses of it, and, you, and certainly God's grace is now, but the fullness? Even in, even in Romans 8, at the end of Romans 8, look at what he says. He says, talking about adoption, for he says, And then not only this, but we also ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, listen to this, with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. That's why Peter would say in 2 Peter 1, 3, apply, see, seeing that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, applying all diligence, see, make every effort to add to your faith. And he goes through a whole list. Go down to verse 8. So that the man or woman of God will, will be useful. For he who forgets these things is near, nearsighted, having forgotten his form, former purification from sins. So that the man of God, again, may be useful, productive in the advancement of the gospel. That's the goal. A future hope. One day. One day. One day. Again, Paul in Romans 8.18, For our sufferings, I do not consider our present sufferings to be worthy compared to what? The glory that is to be revealed in us. Is to be revealed in us. And you see it on your hand. Our security is in, is in our God and His promises, not in man's approval of us. It's not in temporal things. This is why we don't have to retaliate or take revenge for ourselves. God has promised to do that for us in Romans 12. Our job is to advance the gospel at all costs, yet with gentleness and respect. Let God deal with our enemies. Let God deal with our rewards. Let God deal with that in faith. But fourthly, fourthly, we, we exalt God as our only hope by gladly suffering even at the will of the very God whom we serve. Verse 17, for it is better. He just said this up in verse 14 as well, but he changes it. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. Even if you and I know that the immediate outcome of our faith is going to be suffering, you know what God's will is? Do it anyway. Stand firm. We have a sign in our house that says, Do what is right simply because it's right. Do what is right. Seek to do what is right simply because it's right. Stand firm in God's grace. Stand firm in the hope. Romans 5 talks about this, that our, for our hope. That the, why can we rejoice in suffering? Because it, it builds our hope. And unjust suffering doesn't give you and I as believers a license to take matters into our own hands and do whatever we want in order just to get out of the suffering and, you know, the ends justify the means. That's not true. Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Doesn't give, us a, doesn't give us permission to water down our walk or water down our testimony in order to be safe or to fit in. 
It's in those very moments that God is most glorified as our hope when we know we're going to suffer. And again, he says it's better, better, better for you to do that. In, in, in Matthew 5, verse 29, he says almost the same thing. He says, if your right eye, again, he says, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it out. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for the whole body to go into hell. Future-oriented hope. Standing firm. Even if, again, God's, God's will. Is, it's not always about our safety. It's, a, it's always about His glory. You go to John 9, the man born blind. Why was that man born blind? Why was he blind all of his life? For that very moment when God would give him sight and God would be glorified. It says that very explicitly in John 9. If your hope if your exaltation is not in the Lord, if your hope is in health and wealth and security and physical fitness, guess what? Then you're going to struggle with blindness because of God's glory. They're going to be in competition. And again, Peter answers the question here of whether a loving God would ordain the suffering of his people, and the answer is yes. Yeah, he might, if he's going to get glory through it. And you see it on your handout. The truth is that even though God's eyes are on the righteous, it may be God's will that his children suffer at the hands of the unrighteous. I mean, not only will we suffer, but we might, it is perfectly, it is completely within the perfect character and nature of our God that he ordained, he allow you or even ordain the suffering so that he would be exalted. And Peter declares that. Why? So that he would be exalted. So that he would be exalted. And again, this was meant to encourage Peter's readers. We don't take it that way. But this, he writes that to encourage his readers. And you see it on your handout. The encouragement found here for all believers is that since suffering is within God's will for his people, it's also under his sovereign control. He's sovereign even over our suffering. Graham Scroggie, a famous theologian, said this once famously, He is at peace whose God is sovereign. He is at peace whose God is sovereign. I mean, even go to, you, we won't turn there for the sake of time, but you can go to Deuteronomy 8 too. All, the suffering of Israel and the wandering in the wilderness. God say, why? God says, I did that. I did that to you so that you would know what was in your heart. Is God good? I don't know what's in my heart sometimes. I tend to think I'm better than I am, honestly, probably. And by the way, so do you. Sometimes, sometimes God allows us to suffer to reveal what we're really trusting in, what we're really hoping in. And, it, and it's really his way of removing these false gods and these false hopes. And ultimately, listen to me, though it hurts, ultimately that's good for us because we're conformed to his image. And, and we've got to rid ourselves of this false doctrine that God would never allow anyone to suffer for doing what is right. Again, one of the reasons why I don't align myself with Joel Osteen. I shared that with our neighbor. I mean, we're following the very footsteps of a Savior who sinned zero. 
crucified, beaten, spat upon, sinned zero. What about us? Should we expect more? And Jesus himself said he came doing nothing, nothing except that which the Father told him to do. He did nothing to his own glory. Everything was to the glory of his Father. And you see it there. Since God willed Christ to suffer, then intentional and purposeful suffering can also be expected to lie along our path as well. And and this boils down to delight and hope. And and you see it there, the next feeling. What Peter wants more than anything from my life and yours is the defense of our God to be seen as a delight. A delight. And and I want to close here. We we have an amazing illustration of this for us in Daniel 3 with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I want to close with this real quick. Basically, these men were not going to bow down to Nebuchadnezzar and his false gods. This is in Daniel 3. And they had disregarded the command to only worship Nebuchadnezzar and their false gods. In verse 13, listen to this. Then Nebuchadnezzar in rage and and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a fiery, burning furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, listen to this. O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of the blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And here's the catch, verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. How about that? Where was their hope? Where was their exaltation? It wasn't in the deliverance. It was in their God. They went through, they've thrown into the fire, but listen, go over in verse 28, look at the result says, the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was the hair of their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor the smell of fire even come upon them. The result, Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore... I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in any way. Do you see the result of their standing firm? Do you see the gentleness and the respectfulness in their answer? They didn't argue with him. We didn't do nothing wrong. No, they didn't do all that. They didn't plead their case. They gave a defense for the hope that is in them. 
And, and in that, they exalted their God as their only hope by setting him apart. That was point one. They exalted their God as their only hope by being ready to give a defense for anyone who asked. They, they exalted their, their God as their living hope by living lives that were consistent. Consistent. It was the consistency of their own lives that God had thrown in the fiery furnace. And they exalted their God as their only hope by willingly suffering. Again, if, if our defense, you see it on your handout, if our defense is fueled by just knowing right answers, by saying what we're supposed to say, looking smart and shutting people up, our defense will be ineffective. People know it when you're just turning to page 32 in the manual and giving them the answer. But if our defense is fueled by a love for God, by a trust in His promises and character, about having experienced those promises and character personally in our lives, then our defense is powerful, joyful, and effective. It's effective. You and I, are de we are defending the God whom we love. We're not just defending truths. We're defending our God. This ought to be a part of our relationship with Him. And you see it lastly, communion with God, relationship with God through the doctrine we contend for. We have to see this as a relationship. A relationship. No less than me defending Karen or my kids. It's not out of, it's out of a relationship. It's not out of just what you want to hear or what I should say to get a result. No, it's about a relationship. A love relationship. And if you're here today and you're a believer, I, I pray that you would do, that you would, if, you, if you've fallen short as all of us have in any of these ways, I pray that you'd repent. I pray that you'd ask God to, to, to do those works in you. Whatever it takes. I pray that you do whatever it takes. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I, I pray that through the worship of believers around you that you'd be drawn to, to the one true God and Jesus Christ whom we serve through our lives. And if, and if, and if you're living by a Christian that, that is living opposite to the word, I, I would ask you to forgive them. For, to not allow Satan to blind your eyes to the truthfulness of the gospel because of the disobedience of one of his children. That's no excuse. The exclusiveness of the gospel, Jesus Christ alone, one-way street, that is offensive. May you and I not be offensive. May you and I be winsome. May you and I be ready to defend our God no matter what. And may we gladly accept whatever our God brings our way if it glorifies Him. Lord, may this be so in our lives.